Welcome to The Moon Underwater, a podcast featuring me, Phoebe Fuller, a Gen Z student, and Professor Kelly Daniels, a Gen Xer, discussing their favorite short stories, poems, essays, and whatever else comes up. Pull up a stool and join us at the bar. Hey, hey. Hello. How you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? Well, I'm Kelly Daniels, as everybody knows by now. Yes, and I am Phoebe Fuller. And what are we doing today? You uh, you chose a story for I us. I did, yeah. We're going to talk about Indian Camp by Ernest Hemingway. Good old Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, that, that, he, was, uh, he was a big deal when I was an undergraduate. And then he got, he, he was like a soft cancel, like yeah. um, when I was in grad school. Well, you know, he's the quintessential macho straight white male mm-hmm. although his straightness is kind of in question if you read <laughs> yeah. a lot of his work yeah i um, have uh, heard some things have you yeah <laughs> yes. um but uh i'm glad you uh, you chose him i haven't uh, read any ernest hemingway in a while so um i had fun with this uh, short piece yeah i have an english professor who um his favorite easily like by far is Ernest Hemingway so he like gives little clips about him here and there and it kind of piqued my interest and (laughs) and I came across this and just you know I researched Hemingway a little bit and I thought that the connections between Hemingway's life himself and this story were kind of fun so I wanted to talk about it cool um I imagine that professor is Dr. Crow yes it is (laughs) well he wrote a book on Hemingway Hemingway and and Ho Chi Minh in Paris and I guess they lived in Paris during the same time. I don't know if they ever met each other, but uh, Dr. Crow wrote a book on that, which is uh, pretty pretty interesting and definitely gives you a deep dive into Hemingway. I'll have to let him know that he has a little feature in this episode. Oh, yeah. He, he <laughs> owes, we, we gave him a blurb, so hopefully you can get something out of that. I think that'd be fun. All right. So I have a little synopsis here if you want me to go through that. Sure. You ready? Might as well just start. All right. No, nothing about the library, no uh, side talk, no, no. Uh, preamble. I mean, no. we could talk about today is um, Denim Day. Do you know what that is? I don't. Okay. So it's celebrated um, April 26th of every week, every year, I believe. Um, and it is basically a protest against sexual violence. Um, I don't know what year it, this happened, but there was a young girl who was assaulted um, and during the court um, meeting, I'm, I'm, the word is escaping me. Trial? Uh, yes, during the trial. Yeah. Um, essentially, they came to the conclusion that her, her jeans were too tight for him to have gotten them off himself, which is implied consent from her end. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, people wear denim in, um, just to stand with her and, and stand against... Um, sexual violence yeah so just a little i was quick like trying to think day. of jokes to tell i'm thinking oh maybe this isn't the right time to uh, <laughs> make it into a yeah joke. we can we can get into jokes in indian camp i think we'll we sure. might have a few of them we got a lot of like nice racist jokes yeah like, uh, oh uh, maybe not <laughs> um yeah i i remember take back the night is the one that i mm-hmm. i remember that and and but anyway, so happy uh, Denim Day. Yeah, happy Denim uh, Day. We outed our, our lag between the recording and the, <laughs> we and did, the posting. Yeah. But, uh, I was thinking about that. We're, not, we're not too far behind. No, I think we're, we're doing, doing fine. Our... Okay. Um, 
Indian camp. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you uh, start us off? So this is my own synopsis that I wrote, um, and I try to make it. It isn't chat GPT? No, it's not, okay, okay. which um, is, a, is a popular topic these days. Is it? <laughs> it is, yeah. I logged into the website, and then it had to make an account, and I was like, I'm not doing all that, and I turned it off. So. Oh, the account was too uh, strenuous for... And you have to pay for it after your first couple, Do you? Right? I have no clue. I haven't even gone there yet, yeah. which is dumb. I, I don't care about ChatGPT. <laughs> okay. okay, synopsis. Young Nick is traveling with his father and uncle to an Indian camp so his physician, doctor, father can perform a C-section on one of the women. At some point during the procedure, a man, the man referred to as the baby's father, kills himself. Nick ponders life and death on the way back from the camp and decides within himself that he will never die. Yeah, that's pretty efficient. Yeah, uh, very straightforward, very yeah. to the point. So what is there in this beyond just the, you know, bare bones plot that uh, makes it interesting? Well, so I, I had done some research on Hemingway and how he, he had loved the woods and like active outdoor life. And like, you know, OK, that makes sense that he's writing about this like camping trip that his family's going on. Um, but him himself had a physician father who would go to an Indian camp, the Ojibwe uh, bark peelers, um, and his father would treat them. And so it's like a direct parallel of like the characters in this story and like their relationships. Maybe not like the personal relationships. There's some funky things going on between Nick and his father and the father's character in general. Um, But I just thought that was interesting how like bare bones it is of this like his personal experience, you know? It's very efficient. Um, He... I'd say Ernest Hemingway was one of the pioneers of what we now call flash fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, just writing very short stories. And this one's a really big font I have here, and it's only <laughs> bare, like six pages. Um, so it's a, it's a short piece, but uh, you get a lot of drama. It's kind of intense. Um, I think it comes from a book called In Our Time. Yeah. Published in 1925. And I do believe that is highly autobiographical. So I think Ernest Hemingway's early writing was just about himself. And a lot, and all through his career, he wrote a lot about himself. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, I think we can definitely take this um, as, you know, a story from his own life. And he's the boy and the father is his father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. just we're back in David Foster Wallace territory, but do you know the eventual fate of Ernest Hemingway? Yes. And yeah. And I think his father. Yes, this is true. Yeah. And I think it's uh, so they they can hope that's not a spoiler for what you were going to bring. No, no later, no, no, no. but uh, it it really is a a family, obviously a genetic thing in that family, but mm-hmm. um, this story reads very eerie. It does now. Yeah. Well, and I, there is a longer version called like Three Shots or something. And I don't, I don't remember. It's called Three Shots. I don't remember what collection it's from. I think it's like the Nick Adams collection because he wrote hmm. a few short stories about like this particular character. Yeah. Um, I, I chose Indian Camp just because it's what I'm more familiar with. But I am interested in like reading that longer version and seeing how it like expands upon certain topics discussed within yeah. this shorter version of it. Um, also Hemingway wrote with the iceberg theory, which I don't think it had that title at the time. Um, but it's the idea that like, if you cut out the crucial action and emotion from a story, they'll be felt stronger by the audience. How do you feel about that? Uh, well, I mean, it worked for him. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, this story is, uh, yeah, the, the iceberg is, uh, people talk about it a lot, something like uh, five-eighths of the iceberg is underwater, right? Mm-hmm. So most of the story. Um, I think that idea is pretty understood nowadays, and a lot of writers try to, you know, say less to say more. Um, at the time that Ernest Hemingway was just starting to write and just starting to get published, though, this was really new stuff. I mean, he's a modernist, mm-hmm. um, which was a time of in- experimentation. And so this doesn't really read as particularly experimental now because Hemingway himself made this so common, this kind of writing. But it almost, it seems very cinematic to me, almost like a script. Mm-hmm. It's just description and dialogue. And the only interior we get at all through the whole story is the very end when it said that Nick felt quite sure that he would never die. Yeah. Um, otherwise, we're just watching from the outside, really. Um, I think that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I think another like theme that I had noticed throughout was like the difference between when it refers to the father as father and when it refers to him as doctor. Cause I think hmm. I, at first my like theory as for like why that is, is that um, when he's like talking to Nick, he's described as father or like if they're having a conversation and if not, then he's described as doctor. But I feel like that's not always true. Like, even, like, even when he talks about Nick, like, there's this one, and I don't have page numbers, mine's just one long PDF, um, but it says, like, the man is talking to his, his brother, and he says, take Nick out of the shanty, George, the doctor said. So I feel like if he's talking about Nick to his own brother, then it would be more of, like, a familial address instead of, like, a professional address, like, in, instead yeah. of, you know? Well, what I think it is is that the his father is acting as the doctor at that moment mm-hmm. more than as a, as a father. Yeah. Take Nick out of the shanty. Although it does sound like that, that is kind of a father's yeah. concern, but, um, and, and maybe Hemingway just didn't even really think about it quite that, that much. Too, yeah. <laughs> it was just, you know, he's both a, a father and, um, I noticed that Nick calls him dad and calls him at the beginning, calls him daddy. Mm-hmm. At the end, after he's just seen, well, he starts calling him daddy as soon as he hears the um, Indian woman screaming. screaming. Yeah. She's got a birched breath, breach, a breach, I don't know, some kind of birth that yeah. isn't working and she needs a C-section. Um, and it says somewhere that like the baby's been trying to come out for two days. That's a long time, man. Two days. Um, so they... Get in. I, I guess what I kind of immediately like about the story is that they get in rowboats and it's in the dark and just rowing a little kid with a, his dad doctor and this uncle and then these two Indians, they get in boats and they just start rowing or paddling across what you imagine is a river or not a river but a, a lake in the in the late night, it's very dark. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just super moody. And you can imagine being a little kid in that situation. Yeah. And then they go into these woods and then there's a shanty and 
you immediately see this woman just screaming in terrible pain. And what's pretty interesting is that the doctor is totally a doctor. He's, he's the science, the man of science, mm-hmm. no emotion. And then he says, here's a, Nick says, oh, daddy, can't you give her something to make her stop screaming? Asked Nick. No, I haven't any anesthetic, his father said, but her screams are not important. I don't hear them because they are not important. Um, I don't know. This, I underlined that. What, did, you, uh, did that mean anything to you? It kind of goes back and forth in my head because on one hand, I want to think of this as neglect because like, that's such an awful thing to say. Like, no matter what his intent is, like, that's just a bad way to put it. Um, and, you know, neglect for minorities in um, medical settings is not uncommon. I mean, this was a long time ago, and it's a very different situation. But, but at the same time, kind of in the back of my mind, like I want to like believe that he's saying this because his goal right now is to get this baby out. Because if it is like such a danger to her, you know, like this baby's been trying to get out for two days, um, and it is breached, and that can be very dangerous. So. Like, part of me wants to believe that that's him just saying, like, that's not the focus right now. Like, I need to get this done. Oh, yeah. No, he's right. He, he has to be a doctor at that moment. Right. And he doesn't have the anesthetic. It's not like he decided not to bring it. Right. Because he's a jerk. And we can't <laughs> waste it. But he also does have a dismissive attitude toward mm-hmm. the Indians. And it's like charity work that he's doing, obviously. Yeah. Um, he does save her and save the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and he's pretty proud of himself about it. Um, yeah, he says the uncle the is pretty much straightforward racist, or at least the way yeah. he talks about them is is uh, condescending at, at best. Um, but I also get the feeling that that doctors are sort of famously cold, and that mm-hmm. actually becomes a problem because they see so much of pain and stuff that they. Uh, just, I guess we'd say, disassociate from it nowadays. Yeah, you get desensitized. Yeah, exactly. Um, Interesting aside, interesting to me at least, is uh, for several years now, they have been teaching, they, whoever they are, have been (laughs) teaching fiction writing to medical students. Oh. Um, And they've been encouraging medical students to take fiction writing classes, but also sometimes they'll have it as part of the curriculum. Mm -hmm because they found that doctors really were shown to lack empathy. Yep. And studies have shown that writing fiction, reading it, but especially writing it, forces you into the perspective of people who aren't you. Yeah. That was a required reading for the first year class, correct? What was? Just, I, I don't know. I feel like I remember there was some reading about, like, the importance of a liberal arts education, and that was one of the examples, was how they were making, like, um, biochem and, like, medical majors take writing classes and art classes just to develop that empathy. Yeah, it's possible. I, if it is a required <laughs> reading, I, I somehow skipped it. But <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I remember it. I don't know when else I would have come across something like that. But Yeah. Well, I mean, every, every class has its own right. reading. But yeah, that's something I always, uh, I always mention when I'm trying to plug the creative writing as something beyond just author training yeah well I, I, I it is I think that's a valid point 
Um, but okay, so also talking about Uncle George, because you had kind of talked about him a little bit, and he seems like not that important of a character in the story. But there are there's there's one looming theory that he is because so during my synopsis I said the man referred to as the baby's father killed himself. But there's this looming theory that Uncle George is the actual father of the baby. Really? Yeah. Um where where is this theory looming from? Um so let me see if I can pull it up. So he kind of um Disappears is this Dr. Crow's kind of uh, <laughs> He may pot. have put this idea yeah. in my brain, okay. But I think it's, it's a valid theory. I wish I would have taken more notes as to, like, why I believe this theory. Um, but he, so he is very, like you said, he is very dismissive of um, the Indians at this camp in general and is very, like, straightforward, like, sexist, or sexist, racist. Well, he Possibly calls her a, a squaw. I mean, yeah. And he, uh, what does he say? She bites him because he's trying to hold her mm-hmm. down because she's in pain. And she bites him and he goes, dirty squaw. Yeah. And then the other Indian is like laughing. Well, and that's the, I think that's one part. Thank you for taking me to that because I think that's one, one part of it is that people are like, maybe she bit him because, you know, this is his fault because he's the one who impregnated her. <laughs> but it also just like would note the abuse and like the, predatory like behavior that American Indians face um but also like George he talks a lot of shit about Nick and he calls him like a coward and a liar where does he do that uh it is I think it's further up like when um perhaps when Nick is out of the out of the shanty it's what whatever scene it's in. It's just George and the father, who doesn't have a name, correct? I feel weird keep calling him the father, but um, uh, I haven't seen that. I just read it just now, but um, it seems like that would be a pretty harsh thing to say to somebody's to uh, while the kid's father is right there. I'm trying to look for it. Oh, my gosh. Am I just making this up entirely? No way. I think so. I don't think he says anything about Nick. He... Yeah. Damn. Well, there goes that theory, I guess. (laughs) Uh, the father talks to Nick at the end. Yes. Um, that's the kind of, you know, the big, uh, I guess, resolution of of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. J- Uncle George, I would need a little more evidence to, to, uh, to start believing in that theory, but it's certainly possible. Um, yeah. I think they call the guy who's up, who's... Um, uh, who kills himself, does he call him her husband? I swear, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think he's called the husband at least once. Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. 
This is a good radio here, us <laughs> looking over our... Yeah, I should have yeah, printed a paper Yeah, he's called The version. Husband. The Husband in the Upper Bunk rolled over against the wall. Mm-hmm. It's when she's screaming. And um, so Nick's dad washes his hands, as he should do, and then he doesn't want to touch the blanket because it's filthy. Yeah. Um, the place didn't smell good. Um, and... He he gives her a cesarean using a jackknife. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty rough. And he's proud of himself because he did a good, you know, he saved her. And, and he had like an athlete's uh, sort of, uh, a, you know, an athlete after the game sort of pride. Mm-hmm. And, and amp, he's, he's, you know, amped up. Um, and George is just kind of there and he's just helping out. Um, and, uh, then they find the husband, his head is, he'd cut his own throat mm-hmm. with a razor and, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's all, it's all very dark. And I think one thing that kind of gets me is like at the end, um, they're having this discussion, Nick and his father, about like um, the woman having a difficult time giving birth and the her husband who killed himself. And Nick asks, is dying hard? And the father replies, no, I think it's pretty easy, Nick. It all depends. Yeah. Oh, that just like, the idea of like death being so easy, and it's true, but it's one of those things that like, I don't know. I think Nick's naivety, maybe, in like, oh, I'll never die. Like he he says that he decides that within himself that he's never gonna die. And I think yeah. that's kind of like. I think that people don't fear death as much as they should, and I think a lot <laughs> of people listening are gonna be like, that's a lie. Or no. Yeah, people are gonna be like, that's a lie. Like I don't fear death, but it's like we do dumb shit all the time that we know is like dangerous. And, and I think a lot of people internalize that as well, but it's like, you shouldn't just fear your death. Like you should fear everyone's death. I don't don't know. Well, I suppose, um, I mean, death is going to happen, so you can fear it or not. It doesn't really matter, (laughs) but it is easy. I mean, I I feel like people just, they put themselves in like dangerous situations because they have so much faith in their body. Like, like this is me coming from a person who's like, I don't understand how, people break their bones how do your bones just give up on you but it's like they do like they just (laughs) give up oh yeah i i think about all the things i did when i was young and it just i'll get uh, like a kind of panic attack after the fact Mm -hmm. um especially like climbing up high on things like electrical towers (sighs) where we would all climb up on them (laughs) while teenagers and drinking alcohol yeah and it was uh jumping off the second story roof into a swimming pool that oh. wasn't near the uh, so you have to get a running start oh my gosh you've and, lived quite the life and well i mean that's just <laughs> a couple, i think this is pretty basic stuff for for uh actually there i just heard this thing on on ra- on the radio on npr about how um earlier generations my generation we had a lot of problems um we had high like teenage pregnancy rates we had high death from 
alcohol, drunk driving and other kind of alcohol or accidental overdose deaths, mm-hmm. um, a- injuries, all, all these kinds of things um, were happening. Um, and that now the numbers of them have gone way, way down with your generation. But it's like this inverse thing is uh, mental health problems have gone up with uh, your generation yes. from mine, even as physical danger has gone down. And the uh, psychologists that are doing these studies and running these numbers hypothesize that it's being careful and safe and staying home, well, especially living through COVID pandemic and having to you know, be online all the time actually keeps you physically safe, but is enormously bad for your physic for your mental health. Whereas being a kid and running out into the world and causing problems and making out and having sex in the back of cars and drinking when you're underage and is enormously dangerous, but actually is probably closer to what we need as development for Mm -hmm. the human animal. It is, it is more of a life lived. Yeah. So anyway, I just think, uh, but yeah, just, I guess that's my comment to the, uh, the risky behavior that I somehow got away with when I was younger. Yeah, it is. And I, I kind of growing up, like the, the dynamic in my household was that like, my dad's going to laugh when he listens to this, but my sister was kind of like the bad kid and I was the good kid. Um, and she's, she's older than me. So <laughs> maybe she was the experimental child where they were like figuring everything out. Um, but I've had less of those experiences just because, like, I is saw the still, consequences. Is she still the bad one? No. I don't think either of us are bad. <laughs> that was I think, your word, not mine. Well, <laughs> she used to be. She would admit that, too. I mean, we, we've grown up now, and we can kind of talk to our family about, like, the shit she used to do. <laughs> yeah. This isn't me dogging on her, okay? I feel like she's like in a position where she can't defend herself. I love her. She's wonderful. And she's very grown up now. She's very mature. She's living on her own. And she has a big girl job. And she has two little Being bad and... teaches you. It gets you into trouble. And then you have to get yourself out of trouble. Yeah. So it, it does help you grow up. But I think... I think you're right, though, in that like the lack of those experiences does kind of like it's it's physical danger or 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 poor mental health that's not to say that she has great mental health but i was it's also not to say that every gen zer is staying home and not doing stuff right no that's not true (laughs) no i mean there's these are just marginal differences in 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 uh uh, statistics yeah and and, in generations i agree yeah yeah i just think it's it's funny because it's pretty true i think I, I like this story. I mean, I don't think it's in super, super complicated. No. It's a story about death. It's a coming-of-age story. But to me, it's a failed coming-of-age story. Yeah. And it's about a little kid's experience of actually seeing death, but not just death, but suicide, um, but also birth at the same time. That is, that is why I love it so much is because he experiences his first death and his first birth or his first birth and his first death, I guess, within a matter of minutes. Yeah. And like, that's so much to process and so much to go through in your mind. And I think that at the end, I think that's what I like about this so much is at the end, despite all that he's just seen, he's 
just like, no, I'll never die. And I think that yeah. innocence is kind of refreshing. Well, the, after they get out of the camp and they're back in the rowboat, it's very uh, pastoral. Mm-hmm. It feels very beautiful. The sun is rising. Uh, the whole thing took place at night, and they, the word dark appears constantly. Yeah. Um, and they're in this shanty, and it smells bad, and, and a horrible thing happens there, but also a, a life, a birth is successfully happens. Um, and then he has this little discussion, and it's not just about death, it's about suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, do ladies always have a hard time having babies? No. Why did he kill himself? I don't know, Nick. He couldn't stand things, I guess. Do many men kill themselves? Not very many, Nick. Do many women? Hardly ever. Now, this is kind of interesting. Uh, this is another statistical fact. Mm-hmm. Women just don't kill themselves compared Correct. to men. Yep. Like men are, the vast majority of suicides are, are men. Yep. Um, I, I don't know that anybody's ever been able to ascertain for sure why. Like, yeah. Do you have any idea why would why is it so common among why is it so split between the sexes? I think it's that idea of like oh, there's a very specific instance I'm looking for where like men are more likely to or like women are supposedly like worse drivers but men are more likely to get into like car accidents. Um and it's just this idea of like everyone experiences like anger or infuriation. It's just that typically men are more, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. It's just whatever they do, they do it with more impact or it's, it's just yeah. like a, a stronger, like, push. yeah, well they drive faster yeah. and, uh, they take more chances. They definitely men just do tend to be more risk. Um, right. That's yep. Um, yep, yep, yep. accepting or risk, risk, less risk averse. Um, but as far as suicide, that just seems like they're just ready to give it up faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the man kills himself because of the sympathetic suffering of his wife. His wife is the one that's actually suffering. Yeah. And she's there for two days. And she manages to survive. And she bites the uncle. So she's like, you know, full of energy and sass and Mm -hmm. you know she's like an animal that's um i mean treating the indian people as animals i feel like is that's that's a part of that racism that that creeps into this story or is in it but um anyway she's got a she's not i'm not finding the right word but she's uh she's got sass yes she does um and the guy kills himself and uh that just shows an enormous I would have to call her strong and him weak and uh, you hate, you don't want to call somebody weak for Mm -hmm. committing suicide. But, um, I guess as it's formulated in this story, that seems to be, I don't know, that's just floating there. Yeah. Well, and I think it is like, like that term of empathy, you know? And I think that what makes the situation different and perhaps more valid to say that he's weak is that he's not actually the one experiencing the pain. And this could easily become problematic if you try to apply it to different and especially more recent um, situations globally, even, which I'm not going to get into because I don't need to do that. Um, But I just I think that it is. Well, and that's part of the theory that like maybe maybe Uncle George is the father and, and 
that's one big question is maybe the husband killed himself because he couldn't stand the idea of this adultery. And now seeing the baby's actual father there with um, the wife in closer contact, you know, maybe he couldn't stand it as they described, like, why do men kill themselves, daddy? Or, yeah, why did he kill himself? He couldn't stand things, I guess. Yeah. So that's another, like, reason for that theory. And that's not why I'm bringing that up, not for that theory. But, I don't um, buy it. <laughs> I don't know. There's I, there's essays on it, man. I know. I believe that, and I believe that people that it is out there. I just yeah. uh, I just don't see it in the pages. Although you said there's a longer version of it. Yes, there is. That that could actually that mean there is could. some evidence. Um, man, maybe we should have read that one. <laughs> no, this is fine. Uh, we don't need. I mean, that's just like a soap opera plot, though. That's I mean, true. I don't even find yeah. it as interesting as just kid sees a, a difficult birth and then sees a suicide all in one night. He's still that age where he calls his dad, daddy. And then they're, they're floating back. Um, it's a really beautiful moment and tranquil in the end. They were seated in the boat, Nick in the stern, his father rowing. The sun was coming up over the hills. A bass jumped, making a circle in the water. That's almost too much. Yeah. It's just like straight up <laughs> I agree. some kind of like fishing <laughs> kind of uh, commercial for some great mm-hmm. kind of... Um, he sews her up with fishing line, by the way. Yeah. Which is was, pretty interesting. Um, Nick trailed his hand in the water. It felt warm in the chill, sh- sharp chill of the morning. I love that, that all of a sudden you have the sensual detail beyond just the visual. Mm-hmm. In the early morning on the lake, sitting in the stern of the boat with his father rowing, he felt quite sure that he would never die. So he rejects everything that he's just learned. Yeah. Which is... All of it. Feels completely honest, and he's just not ready for the information. But we also know that he will eventually get... He'll, he'll get there. Yeah. I mean, because, it's, it's inevitable. Because it says, in the early morning on the lake, sitting on the stern of the boat with his father rowing, he felt quite sure. Placing it so specifically at that moment also tells us that that's, that's the only time he's going to feel that, right? Yeah. Like he's well, and not- I think you even brought up how like the bass jumping, making a circle in the water was too picturesque and commercial. Yeah. Um, but maybe that is like what helped him make this decision. Like life is too perfect. I'll never die. Yeah. It's a, it's just one little moment of grace before he finally grows up into that knowledge. Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful story by Hemingway. I'm not sure where it's published, but it's called a day's wait. And it's about this little kid, Nick. I think it's Nick. Um, and he, has a fever he's sick and he stays home and his uh his fever's like 102 or something Mm -hmm. and his he's like oh he hears his parents talking about his temperature and so the kid is sitting there in bed and he goes it's okay and he's he's acting really kind of weird but they're like oh you'll be all right and the father goes off and goes hunting and then he comes back and the kid's like, you know, it's okay. You don't, I hope you're not sad after I die. I'm, 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 not, I'm not worried about dying or something. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're not going to die. He's, but it turns out that he had lived in Europe for a while where they use Celsius. 
and you know, like a 40 degree temperature is like super high. So 102, he thought yeah. that he was just done. Yeah, and so fried, all day he actually. sits there in bed, just, just absolutely certain that he's going to die and that they're just not telling him. Mm-hmm. And then finally his dad comes back and they go, no, 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 no. And they explain it to him. And then he's like, oh, okay. But he spent a whole day just being ready to die. Um, and it's really powerful. And it said the rest of the day he, you know, cried at little things. And, you know, yeah. he was just kind of turned back into a boy. But for a while, you know, he had, had that knowledge um, in a way that I think that Nick doesn't yeah. get the knowledge here because he's just not ready to... Well, to I don't do know. It. I like, I, and I'm not saying that you dislike that he's um, so naive, but I, I like that he's so naive and that, like, it kind of shows his resistance and how, like, I think there is a turning point and it's not, like, one specific instance or, like, one specific day that you just grow up, but it is, you know, there is a period of time where you kind of notice, like, oh, my entire mentality is changing and I'm growing as a person. And that's a weird mentality to have, but it really does allow you to like reflect on on childish behaviors and experiences that you had in the past that maybe you can look back on now and find a deeper meaning of. Because I can guarantee you this kid's going to remember this for the rest of his life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then write a story about it. And, yeah. Uh, have you ever been to the Hemingway Museum? I have not. In Oak Park? Mm-mm. And there's also his uh, childhood home. You know, his mom would dress him up like a girl because she wanted a girl. I did not know that. Yeah, and she would buy dresses for him and stuff when he was little. Oh, my gosh. And uh, his, a lot of his writing has a real gender-bending stuff, which is so far ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. And there was a piece, a novel that wasn't published in his lifetime. What the heck is it called? I can't remember what it's called right now. I, I read it, It's but it is very much... Uh, about a, a young couple and they kind of swap genders basically mm-hmm. and um, it's pretty clear by the end that she is as we the the word today we use is pegging <laughs> and she's which is pretty wild for a Hemingway story and you know set in like 1920s yeah um, and uh, anyway, that his seeing his hometown, his his uh, childhood home is pretty interesting. But the museum is is amazing, um, and not too far from where we are here, in Rock Island. So I would like to check. Recommended. There's uh, this harsh, harsh letter that he received a breakup letter from a, a nurse that he um, that he dated during. Spanish Civil War, I guess. Mm-hmm. And she, she's like, oh, and she left him for somebody else. And she goes, I need a man, not a boy. It was that kind of letter. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been saved. And so going to that museum just for that letter is... that's that. Well, because they were separated at the time, right? Like they were like physically separated, right? I don't know the whole story. I know that he wrote, writes about it in various ways in fiction, and he always makes her seem terrible. Yeah. And obviously. So I don't know what the truth is. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I haven't... I, I never read his uh, biography. There is a biography called Papa Hemingway or something. Hmm. But wait, did you hear that they were 
separated? Yeah, that, I think... That he went back to the States and she was still in England or... Something like that. Like they were in, they were in separate places physically and he had received this letter and I, I don't know, maybe I'm misremembering, but she said that because she had found someone else. Yeah. And she, she also didn't think that he, he was going to go anywhere with his writing career. Yeah. She's like, you know, this writing thing you're doing isn't paying off and I need a real man who can hold down a job. Which I always think that's what made him just like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. Mm-hmm. And that he became famous just out of spite. Yeah. Could you imagine her, like, watching this and, like, watching yep. the world now and seeing how... It wouldn't have taken all that long. I mean, he got really famous really fast. No, and yeah. Really but I mean, like, too. <laughs> I don't know. I... I don't know much about her. I'm sure nobody else really does. But, like, she seemed kind of pessimistic. So maybe her, like, seeing us now in the year of 2023 being like, damn, people are still talking about him. I oh, really missed I out. See. Like if she could see us now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, like, just her, seeing her how letter, long it's gone on. Her letter lives on. And yeah. uh, his stories do, too. That would be embarrassing. And the thing about being the writer is you get to spin it the way you want to spin it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's one of the benefits, I guess. That's why I want to be a writer. But yeah, I also kind of want to be a professor. I feel like that'd be fun. Correct me if I'm wrong. But <laughs> no, it's fun. It's a good job. Uh, and uh, but being a writer, what is uh, um, what's her name? Who wrote Bird by Bird? Anne Lamott. Mm. Anne Lamott, Lamott was talking about memoir and essays and stuff where you write about other people. And she's t- writing about how you don't have to answer to other people about the way you write about them. It said, you own your own story. If they wanted to, to be written about better, they should have been nicer to you when they had the chance. <laughs> that reminds me, there's like a Taylor Swift interview where oh, like yeah. the interviewee asks her like, how can you expect men to want to date you when you go off and you write these horrible songs about them? And she's like, she basically says that like, oh, they had their chance to be a good person. Now I'm here. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, maybe, yeah, if they're, Perhaps there were some that didn't make it into the songs because they were nice. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Mm, I don't know. But I, don't know. I, <laughs> I mean, do think that's funny, though. I, if, yeah, I don't know. I think it's true, though. Like, I like that that ideology because, like, there's not just one truth either. Like, different people have different experiences with the same person. Yeah. And like, just because I think a person is shitty doesn't mean that they always have been shitty or always will be shitty. Uh, yeah, well, being written about is probably not that fun. I try to, I, uh, I've certainly written about people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've written in the, the Sun magazine, and uh, they really like memoir. They like, and uh, I, I've written about my past and different people, and I never write it because I'm hoping to get back at that person. I just write it because it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's I, your truth. I can it's get, your experience. And I can get published and... But then the magazine makes you contact that person and and, ask. and show them the the piece and I've mm-hmm. that have been some of the most uncomfortable moments of me as a writer is having to like you know f- hunt somebody yeah. down some ex girlfriend from years ago. Who, what if you like replaced their name? Oh, uh, even then I've had to really. Oh uh, yeah, this the way that this magazine works, they don't want to get sued. And I get so, that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So, anyway, yeah, I, it's never been very fun uh, to try to get revenge by, by making somebody look bad. <laughs> and if you know you have to contact them, 
then it does make you moderate your your stance on them a mm-hmm. little because I mean, really, if it's bad enough, I think the magazine probably wouldn't publish it. Yeah. If the person was super pissed off and that didn't happen, I'm going to get my lawyers. So you th- have to think about that and go, well. Um, kind of have to like filter it for your own benefit. Yeah. And that's probably even more fair because you don't want to be so one-sided in your mm-hmm. your portrayal that, yeah. So, um, but yeah, fun story. I like yeah. it. I mean, fun in a really dark and kind of gruesome way. But I think those are always the most fun stories, though. Yeah, you need need conflict. Gives you something to think about. Yep. Indian camp. Uh, all right. Anything else? No. Okay. Well, I it's guess a fun story. I guess that was it for this time. Um, yeah, I've uh, produced and edited uh, this episode. Phoebe is uh, on Instagram. Yeah, follow us on Instagram, tmuw.pubcast. And uh, the Moon Underwater Podcast at gmail.com. I haven't looked at that account I made yet. Maybe if there's any emails, uh, I'll have to find them. <laughs> right. That'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Our, our fan fans need to know. 